Amen. You all can be seated. You can open up your copy of the scriptures this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. And we're going to start at verse 14. So chapter 6, verse 14. Now, before we jump into this, I did want to acknowledge, and I'm going to use a code name for her, uh, but many of you know a lady uh, who we refer to as Randy Baker. Uh, she's actually with us this morning uh, here in person and is going to be around in the States for some months ahead, and so we're looking forward to connecting with her. She is one of our sent ones, one uh, that we have sent out years ago and has had an adapted ministry in different places around the globe, uh, but we are thankful to have you with us. And want to pray uh, that you would have a refreshing time while you're home, uh, that our church could be built up by the testimony of, of what God's doing in you and through you, and that we could be an encouragement to you uh, while you're with us. But it's good to have you with us uh, to worship, and thankful that you're here. Uh, well, we have been going through Second Corinthians for a few months now, and we have, we're about halfway in some of the commentaries I use uh, to go through this book. Uh, you know how you can see the middle of a book binding sometimes when you flip right to the middle. I passed some of those pages this week in the commentary, so I think we're about halfway through uh, this book of the Bible, and I have loved going through it, and I hope that it's been beneficial to you uh, as we've been going through this and as we will continue to. Uh, one thing you may notice, and there will be one even in today's text, but there's several of these sprinkled throughout this letter. There's kind of these Christian catchphrases or things that we know just from if we've grown up around church or been around church much at all. There's kind of these phrases that we've latched onto somehow, somewhere, whether it was in a Sunday school class long ago or something that we've read. And there's a whole bunch of them in 2 Corinthians. Uh, there's phrases like, Chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Uh, there's chapter 2 where Paul says we are the aroma of Christ. Uh, there's chapter 4 where he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, chapter 5, he talks, is where we get the phrase, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, there's uh, chapter 5, we're called ambassadors for Christ. Later on in this letter, there's going to be the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, there's all these statements that, that come in this letter, but a lot of times we have never really known or paid attention to where they come from. We just know that's in the Bible somewhere. We know somebody said it, and we just kind of pull that sentence out and use it in different ways and a lot of times we're right in how we do that, but sometimes we misapply, misinterpret things because we're just thinking of it as a sentence instead of as a part of a letter, as part of an argument, as part of a communication between a person and a group of people. And today's text has probably the most clear example of that. Uh, we're going to see as we read this here in just a second, it has a very famous phrase in it that if we've grown up around a church, we've probably heard a bunch before. If you have not, that is okay. We'll explain and hopefully feel the weight of what it actually means. But it's this phrase that we're going to hear where Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, that is a phrase that a lot of people are familiar with, but maybe had no idea who said that, who they said it to, why they said it, what they meant. And uh, we apply it in all sorts of ways. It's used in some youth groups uh, as like a, a slammer verse to say, don't date an unbeliever, uh, th things like that. It's used in all sorts of ways that may or may not be appropriate. We'll see. Um, but we, I want us today to read this text and read the verses that follow to understand what was Paul saying? 
Like, what was he trying to communicate? That's always when we come to the Bible, that's what we want to think first, is what did the person who wrote this actually mean? Like, what were they trying to get across? And then that's what the Spirit of God will use to help us see what it means for us, the significance that it has for us as the people of God today. And so I want to read this text. We're going to go from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through verse 1 of chapter 7. And it's just a small reminder to us of these little numbers and big numbers we see in our Bibles. Paul wasn't writing like a little 14 uh, next to uh, this. Uh, We wrote those later. Um, But sometimes chapter breaks don't match logical flow. So I'm going to read that section and then we'll walk back through it. Um, But the context of this is this, just real briefly. This is written by Paul to a church at Corinth, the church at Corinth that he had helped start. Uh, that he had seen people come to faith and he's been away for some time. He's done a few visits to them and there's been a tenseness between them, this church, certain people in it, and the Apostle Paul. There's been this tension. He's just most recently been addressing uh, this idea of reconciling to each other, how Christ has reconciled us to God and then how he wants them to be reconciled to him. He's saying the last thing he said right before what we're about to read is he had told this church, widen your hearts to me. Like, what, like he wants them to be right relationally. But then he kind of turns a, an abrupt corner and says some, uh, a way to distance from certain people. If they're to open their hearts to him, be reconciled to him, there's also certain people there to distance from as well. So that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 14. So the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continued his letter this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as we you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. I want to state uh, what my argument for us, my, uh, my message for us this morning would be from this text, what I think the Apostle Paul was telling them and what I think the Spirit would use his text to tell us today, it's simply put would be this, is that in your pursuit of holiness, in your pursuit of holiness, loosen your bonds with unbelievers. So in your pursuit of holiness, loosen your bonds with unbelievers. And the flip side to that, which I'll address at least a little bit, is to strengthen your bonds with believers. So in your pursuit of holiness, loosen your bonds with unbelievers and strengthen your bonds with believers. And so I wanted to start at verse 14, that famous verse that we've probably heard in different ways, used by different people for different reasons, um, but that do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the statement, that's the command that governs this whole passage. Uh, That's what he leads with in this section, and he follows it up with the reason he's saying that. But the command he gives, and that we would be wise to hear today, says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He had told them to open their hearts, widen their hearts to him, but now he's telling them to to stay away, to, in a sense, close their hearts to other people, to to keep their distance from them. And he he uses an agricultural term, right, of yoke. I've, t- I've confessed many, many times from this pulpit and will continue to, I know nothing about farming or animals, 
anything about that, but it, even I know what a yoke is, just from pictures and things like that. If you don't, I'll, I'll try to condescend to explain in my layman's terms uh, what it is. A yoke is, if you can imagine, animals, livestock, uh, who uh, human beings were needing to learn to harness their power for farming instead of just getting their tools and by themselves coming out on their hands and knees all the time. They were trying to harness the power of animals, of oxen, for example. And so they would put this, this uh, piece on top of the, over the neck and in front of the, the shoulders of these strong animals, and they would typically pair them together in twos, uh, where they would have a slot for one animal, a slot for another, and they would harness them, and then those animals would pull either carrying cargo or, or to help plows go through the ground. Hopefully that's a good explanation of what yokes are. Uh, that, that's as best that I can do. But Paul is not just using this randomly. There's actually, even in the Old Testament itself, there's a very specific command that seems out of place for a little bit. Uh, if you just read it in passing back in the book of Deuteronomy. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, as part of the law that God had given to his people, there was this command tucked in there where he had told them, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That seems like a random thing for God to put in the law that he gave to his people. Don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. What he, he was telling them was to, in that, that, uh, that yoke, that tandem, don't put animals of different kinds. Like if you have an oxen, use an oxen. Don't pair together animals that don't correspond to each other. And Again, I know nothing about farming, but even I could guess why that may be, right? If you can imagine one really strong animal, an ox, and then a, a donkey next to it, at minimum, at best, they're going to be out of whack, right? And there's going to be one that's pulling a certain direction. The donkey's just going to be kind of drug along, right, along for the ride uh, while the ox does its work. Uh, so, but it also could have been, uh, in addition to this being for, like, balance and uh, equilibrium of those uh, animals working together, it could have been to protect that weaker animal too, right? Because you could imagine really dramatic shifts where this animal could be more than just along for the ride, just be drug, and that bigger animal could be oblivious to it. Uh, and so he, God had given this command to them, I think not just to teach something about animals, but to, to paint a bigger picture, a broader principle that Paul picks up on here as he's writing to this church. So Paul uses that Old Testament quotation and then he speaks it as a command uh, to this church at Corinth, but he's not talking about animals, right? He, he's talking to human beings about how they relate to human beings, and he applies it to this relationship between believers and unbelievers, and he's saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's writing to people that profess to be followers of Jesus. And he's saying, as you think about your life, the work that God's called you to do, the, the effort that you're putting forth in your life, he's saying, don't be yoked unequally with unbelievers. And implied in that is you should be yoked with believers. That there should be people who are of the same mind, of the same heart, or, or are oriented the same way as you. And so we can't get a precise definition of what he's getting at because he's using a metaphor, right? He's using a word picture saying don't be yoked unequally. He's not literally talking about a physical contraption. He's, he's using metaphor. But I think what he's getting at is this idea of avoiding, uh, in math class we learn about congruent and incongruent things, things that match and things that don't match. Uh, he, he's talking about not living incongruently with other people. 
that the people that you are most closely bonded to, that you're most closely in community to, that you're most closely working with should be people who are believers, people who are like-minded with you. Those should be, when you are thinking about the core of your identity, it should be found in, with, in community with believers rather than unbelievers. But the question that, that it, it presents then is, who are unbelievers? Like if, if we're to avoid that close, deep relationship with them, if we're to avoid at the deepest uh, places of intimacy and fellowship uh, having those bonds be with unbelievers, the question is, who are unbelievers? Who is Paul telling them, cautioning them to, to be distinct from, to be set apart from? Clearly, unbelievers would be, at a minimum, if you're thinking of broadly speaking, as people who don't believe in Christ, right? People who do not have faith in the Lord Jesus, the same way that these Corinthians do. Uh, but there's different interpretations of this passage that, that, uh, that people have taken over the millennia since Paul wrote this. Some think that when Paul was warning them against uh, yoking closely with unbelievers, that he was talking first and foremost about the people there in the city of Corinth who were just these absolutely clear pagan people who had nothing to do with Jesus, would make no bones about it, who would go into their temples, worship their gods. Uh, that's what many people think this text is referring to, that Paul's saying those types of people who are overtly, openly anti-Jesus, don't be yoked with them. And I, I don't think that is a wrong thing, uh, that, that fellowshipping in that way with the pagans there in Corinth. But I think given the flow of the argument of this letter and what is that, what's going on in the church at this time, there's these false teachers in the church who are casting doubt about Paul, who are saying to this church, don't listen to him. Like his ministry is a joke, like he is poor and weak and fragile, and God is not with this guy, don't listen to him, listen to us. And there's people who are listening to him, those teachers who are following after them. And Paul, I think, as I read this text, I think what he's most directly saying when he's saying don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers is not talking about unbelievers who are open and overt about it out in the community, but even unbelievers that are within the community of the church. Like people who in some way respect Jesus, who in some way have a high regard for him, but who are casting doubt upon the very ones that Christ has sent out who are saying, yeah, the gospel that we teach is different from the one that Paul teaches. Now, the gospel that we teach is one of wealth and prosperity and significance and influence and strength in this world. Don't listen to what Paul says, where he talks about weakness and inability. Like the, and so what I think he's addressing here to this church in this passage and what follows is he's saying to not be unequally yoked with them. These people who profess Jesus on the surface, but who deny the very gospel that Jesus gave to us in the nature of it. I think that's who he's most directly telling them to avoid being unequally yoked to. And so I want to show you how, what, how his logic works uh, in this passage. Because he gives that command, boom, right at the front, don't be unequally yoked with these people. And then the next word is Four, right, And then he takes several what we call verses, uh, several sentences to explain why he's telling them to be careful about that close affiliation with these people and even encouraging them to, to separate in some ways from them. And so what he does in those next few sentences, the middle of verse 14 down through the middle of verse 16, is he asks five rhetorical questions, right? Rhetorical questions, if kids are in the room, they're questions like, uh, I can't, I'm not good at thinking examples on the fly. They're questions where you're, you know the answer just by them asking it. 
Like if, if your mom asks you like, did you eat your vegetables? And she's looking right at your plate and she sees your vegetables. She's not wanting you to actually answer. Like she knows the answer, right? Uh, and she knows you know the answer. Paul, when he asks these questions, he knows the answer. He knows they know the answer. And he's asking these questions about the the congruity of things. Do these things go together? Do they, do they match? And so he asks them in different ways, um, but the, the answer for all of them is supposed to be nothing or none. There, there's nothing in common between these two things. It's like oil and water. Uh, so he says first, like, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? The answer would be none. And he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? You think of a light switch. We've invented dimmer switches, but historically there's on and off, right? There's dark and there's light. Uh, and so the fellowship that light has with darkness is none. The third question, what accord has Christ with Belial? And if you don't know what that word is, that is okay. I honestly did not till I read this this week. It's just a personified name for Satan or the evil one that even Jordan was uh, alluding to and calling us to be aware of. He's saying, what accord does Jesus have with Satan? None, right? There's distinction there that's complete. And he says, fourth, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The, the implication of the, how he's asking these questions is that there's none. There should be none at that deep affiliation level. And then the fifth one, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so he's using in the city of Corinth that had tons and tons of temples to all sorts of gods. He's, he's drawing on that and saying the temple of the true God, what affiliation would it have with the idols of all these other religions? And he's saying none. So over and over again, he's saying there's, this, there's a difference. There's a distinction between all these things. And he's using all this as a grounds to tell them there should be distinction between you and unbelievers. That there should be an incongruity here. There should not be this deep bond, just as light doesn't go with darkness, righteousness doesn't go with lawlessness. There should not be this deep bond between those who are united with Christ and those who are not. And we'll try to explain some of what, practically speaking, that works out. But as he continues in this text, as you get to the second half of verse 16, he adds even more logic, more reason to his command to not be unequally yoked with these unbelievers. And he quotes several Old Testament passages. And if you go on a search to try to find this quotation from 16, 17, 18 in one place in the Old Testament, you're not going to find it, okay? Uh, because it's actually several texts that Paul more or less alludes to. I won't list them all off here, uh, but if you have a study Bible, you can probably look them up later. But he, he quotes various Old Testament texts, these passages from hundreds, if not thousands of years beforehand, that where God had made certain promises of what he was going to do with his people, but then where God had made certain calls upon their life to act differently. Uh, that, that God had promised this new way he was going to deal with his people when the Messiah would come, but then also that God was going to ask of certain things from them. God was going to call forth a certain way of living from them. So if you, see, you can see both of those things in these quotations in verse 16, 17, and 18. There's a few promises that he weaves in, right? He says things like in verse 16, I will dwell among you. I'll make my dwelling among them. He says, I'll walk among them. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. So God had been promising this, that when the Messiah came, there was going to be this intimacy, this fellowship of God with his people, that they had been unexperienced fully by them before, that he was going to even live amongst them. 
be their God. They would be his people. Verse 17, he, he had made this promise that Paul refers to where God had said at the end of verse 17, I will welcome you. So there's this welcoming, this bringing back of his people into fellowship with him, community with him. Verse 18, he had told them in the Old Covenant, he had made these promises of the one that was to come where he said he would be a father to them and that they would be his sons and daughters. Uh, that Not just that they would be kind of these uh, tack-ons that are just kind of in his family, but they'd be fully his sons and daughters. And Paul has made this very clear throughout this letter to the Corinthian church. We've, we've read through some of these chapters in weeks gone by, like chapter 3 especially, where Paul had been trying to remind them, these Christians at Corinth, the sweetness of what God had given to them through Jesus, that they'd been given the Holy Spirit, that they'd been given new hearts, that they'd been given uh, fellowship with God himself, that they had been, even in chapter 5, he says that they've been made a new creation, right? That there's been this profound and supernatural has taken place in you and taken place in us, that, that our decision to trust in Christ was not just some box we checked, but it was a transformation of how God relates to us and how we relate to each other. And so he had wanted to help them see the magnitude of what had taken place, that all these promises that God had made had come true. That in, through the sending of Jesus, that now because of what Christ has done on the cross and in his being raised, God actually can dwell among his people again. God actually can receive children back as his sons and daughters. God can welcome them back to him. And Paul has wanted them to see the magnitude of what's taken place in their life. But he's also in quoting these verses, reminding them of what God all along, as, he's been, as God has been getting his people to look ahead to the coming of Jesus, God had not just wanted them to know his promises, but also to know his call upon their life, of how he wanted them, once that Messiah had come, how he wanted them to live. And so if you look in those verses he references, you see two things in particular that he's reminding the Corinthians that God was calling as a response for his people. In verse 17, for example, you see that he says, he's quoting God from the Old Covenant, where God had said, go out from their midst and be separate from them, right? God had called upon his people not just to live in the sin, live amongst the community that they had been part of as fellow sinners, but he's calling them to separate, calling them to live distinctly, to live differently from the people that they used to live among, right? So there's this relational call of God upon the life of his people. But then there was even this call, just not even relationally, but just in the day-to-day -day of life, this call upon their life to live lives of holiness, right? So he continues in verse 17 and says, not just be separate from them, but then he says, and touch no unclean thing. So he wanted them, if they were part of this new community that God was going to establish, he wanted them to live differently. Not just in who they associate with and who they don't, who they relate to, who they yoke together with, but even in how they live their life. That they were to avoid any hint of ungodliness and unrighteousness, anything that would defile them, anything that was unclean. And so Paul's reminding them God's made these huge promises to us that have come true through Jesus. That we can be his children. We can be his sons and daughters. He can dwell among us. We can be like that temple of God that, where the spirit of God lives among us. But then he's also reminding them that God makes a call upon those people. God makes a call upon us if we're part of that temple to live differently. To not just live in the same ways that we ha always have. To not just live amongst the same people that we always have. But to go out from them and to live differently. So he's made these promises but he's also called 
for holiness. And so Paul's saying all that to ground what he has said back in verse 14, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's not just saying that as a piece of advice, like, hey, this would be wise for you to, to not associate that with them. He's reminding them, God's done something huge to save you and draw you out of that old creation. And now li- he wants you to live differently in your relationships and in the way that you even go about your quote-unquote private life. And so it's no surprise that he returns in verse 1 of chapter 7 to that same basic command he gave back in verse 14. It's just kind of widened out as a principle. He talks there about, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And so it's like he's reiterating what he said back in verse 14, but he's saying it even in a broader sense of we are to cleanse ourselves as the people of God. And part of how we do that is going to be even relationally, who we associate, who we spend time with, who our deepest affiliations are with. Unless there be any confusion, I don't want us to read this text, and I don't think Paul would have wanted them to read this letter in a way that would make them think or make us think that I have to do these things, I have to cleanse myself, I have to to cut off relationships in some capacity from unbelievers in order to get God's favor, in order to be welcomed back by God. I would note for you, in verse 1 of chapter 7, he calls them beloved, right? Right? that's beloved by him but also beloved by God he's not saying since we have these promises people who might be beloved by God maybe someday will be beloved by God if you live if you follow this command he's saying you are already beloved like these promises have already started coming true in us that Christ has come. He has made us new. He's reconciled us to himself. You're already, we are already recipients of these promises. Like they're already starting to come true. And he's saying, since that's the case, since those promises that God has made are coming true, we've been brought back to God, we've been restored to him, he's saying we also then need to live as the people God calls us to live. Like if, that's, if those commands are ways he calls his children to live, if we're his children, we're to live those ways. We're, we're to go out from amongst the people that we used to associate with. We're to, to not keep touching the unclean things that we used to run to. So he's calling them in light of the promises of God to cleanse themselves. And this is an important thing for us to remember is there is a clear call throughout scripture, a call to holiness amongst the people of God. That we are not just saved, reconciled to God, brought into his family just to keep living how we want. To just keep living as if we're part of that old creation. To, start, to keep living as if we're just that same old person. If God saves us, if God brings us into his family, it is to transform us. It's to wrap us into this new creation where we live like Jesus, not like Adam. Like where we live like the holy people that God called us to be. And Paul is wanting them to know, man, there is a responsibility that we have even though we have been cleansed, right? He says that in other places. We have been cleansed of all our sins. If we're united with Jesus, the same guy who says that wrote verse 1 of chapter 7 where he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Alexander McLaren said once, he said, we are cleansed, but we still have to cleanse ourselves. What he meant is that in God's sight, legally speaking, we've been cleansed of our sin. We've been, it's been removed from us, but in the practicalities of our life, in the, the nuts and bolts of living life in this world, God still calls us to cleanse ourselves, to put off the sin that we're drawn to, to fight against temptation that could overtake us. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 is a, a powerful text where the author said to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Have you thought on that verse before? He says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It, what Paul gets at in this text and in other writings is he's trying to help us to see if we've been brought into the new creation, there is a holiness that needs to start being produced within us. That, that God will produce words. There's a responsibility I have to try to cleanse myself to honor the one who has died for me and been raised for me. And Paul is calling that out from them. And he says that we are to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. It's not just that God wants part of our life to change, one small sliver of it to change. He's saying that every part of it, where there's been a, a propensity to sin, a running after unrighteousness, all of that is to change. All of that's to gain our attention and say, I want to live every aspect of my life, body and spirit, to use his phrase in verse 1, to honor my Savior, to honor the one who's died for me. So there's a putting off and a putting on. And he wants us as Christians, he wanted these ancient Christians and uh, the Spirit would want us as, as modern day Christians to make sure as we're living our lives that we are demonstrating by the way we live our new allegiance. That we're demonstrating our new nature as a new creation in God. That we're demonstrating our new identity. That we're not just living as that same old person. We're not just doing those same old things. But that we have been fundamentally changed once and for all. And he wants us to show it in how we live. To show it even from this text in who we associate with. How we relate to people who don't believe the gospel. And so I want to give some practical ideas uh, in this last section here of ways that this text should land on us. If we're called to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, I do want for a moment to think, how do, what does that mean for unbelievers who are overtly unbelievers, like people who have no allegiance to Jesus whatsoever? But then I also want us to think in terms of what I think Paul is most directly speaking to here, of how do we relate to people who are even within the church who don't really believe the gospel and who are demonstrating that over and over in how they live their life. And so first I want to talk about what I would call relating to the world as the church. And then I'll talk about relating to the world in the church. So relating to the world as the church. I would say based on, I'm not, if I was writing the scriptures, I may not have written 2 Corinthians 6.14, but it is a command from Paul in this text that we need to wrestle with where he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. As we think about people in our world who are overtly anti-Christ, who, who make no bones about it, I would just say in a very simple way that we ought to not, if we are a Christian, if we are somebody who's been born again, someone who's placed their faith in Christ, we ought to not have our closest associations and friendships with unbelievers. I think that is what this text at minimum is getting at. That, that we ought to not have our closest relationships, the ones where we gain the most life, where we spend the most time, that we have the deepest affinity to, ought to not be with people who are overtly anti-Jesus, who do not have a respect for him, who do not have a love for him. There are some of us, and maybe this has been true of us in different stages of life. For some of us, it may be true even presently. There's some of us who are more committed to our political parties, to candidates that we like, to office holders than we are to our brothers and sisters in the church. There's some of us who are more committed to our company and to our coworkers than we are to our brothers and sisters in the church. 
There's some of us who are more committed to our fellow Americans than we are to our fellow Christians. There's some of us who are more committed to our teammates on a sports team than we are to our, our brothers and sisters in this congregation. There are some of us who are more committed to people who share our same hobbies or the things that we like to do recreationally than to the very people who share our same faith. This ought to not be. Like, we ought to have a priority, a valuing of the people of God in our lives that is demonstrable, that is clear to us and clear to others, that these people who trust in Christ, I resonate most with them. I enjoy the other things that I can enjoy in a holy way with other people, but these are the people I love most. These are the people who we love Christ together, who we grow with. And it should be demonstrable in our life how we spend our time, who we have deepest conversations with, who we have most intimate fellowship should, if at all possible, be with fellow believers. And if not, if we keep taking on the yoke of unbelievers next to us, we are going to be pulled, or at least tempted to be pulled in directions that are not honoring to Christ. To, to value things that we ought to not value, to give attention to things that we ought to not give attention. Our deepest affiliations, associations, friendships should be with believers. And then hear me on this. This is not a call from Paul or from me as one of your pastors to total isolation from the world. Okay, I'm, I'm not, I, we are not a cult. I'm not telling you don't call people, don't talk pe- to people, don't spend time with people, don't have people in your home who are unbelievers. Please do all those things. We are called to do those things. Like he said in the previous chapter, right, that we're ambassadors for Christ, right? Like we have a responsibility to talk to people, to share the good news with them. But here in chapter 6, he's saying the closest association should not be with that there should be a, a deeper fellowship with fellow believers. And we, I read one author who talked about how we don't want to, we want to be more a Christian colony than a convent, if you want to think of it that way. We're not just like sheltering ourselves from the world, like nervous that they're going to take over us, but it's like God has established us as a colony amongst people who don't yet believe, uh, who don't yet, uh, who aren't yet wrapped into that new creation. We want to bring them into us, not to be afraid constantly that they're just going to bring us into their world. We can learn from unbelievers, we can benefit from unbelievers, we can serve unbelievers. And we ought to share the gospel with unbelievers. Uh, That is our responsibility, our privilege, our duty. But our deepest friendships and relationships should not be with them. That there should be a resonance that we feel more with the people in this room than we feel with anybody else in our community. Right? Like, even if that doesn't naturally rise up within us, we share the deepest, most fundamental realities with the people in this room than we share with people who have our same degree or the people who like our same team or who we're cheering for with uh, on the, the soccer field or whatever. Like, we have more affinity with each other than with anyone else. I want to say as one practical note before I talk about relating to the world within the church, one thing about marriage specifically, because I think this text does speak towards marriage. I don't think that's what Paul immediately had in mind. But one thing I want to make clear is this verse 14 is not remotely a command. If you are already married to someone who's an unbeliever, it is not a command to divorce them. It is not a command to relationally distance from them. He addressed that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he actually commanded the opposite, to to stay with them, to love them, to serve them. So I don't want anyone to hear that if you're married to an unbeliever to think, well, this is my out. This is myself, right? It has a picture that it can show of permanency. 
But I think this is a text that should give us pause if we're thinking about a relationship. If we're thinking about hitching ourselves, whether in dating or certainly in marriage, to someone who does not love Christ, this at minimum should give you pause about that and I think should actually prevent you from doing that. Because marriage is a bonding of your heart, your soul, your life with a person. And, and if you marry one who is an unbeliever, you're going to be pulling in different directions the rest of your life unless the Lord converts them. And if there is a way to, to, to avoid that heartache, avoid that pain, avoid that division that's going to be present in your marriage, I think we ought to do that. And I know that it's difficult. I would seek counsel if I were you, if that's you. Um, but I would be glad to talk with you. I know there's others who'd be glad to talk to you. One more thing is that re- relating to the world within the church. This is what I think Paul's most directly talking about in this text. Not just the people who are out there who obviously don't respect Jesus, to, but more to how do we relate to people who are within the church, who are around, who have some respect for the Bible and of Jesus, but who don't really trust the gospel that he has given to us. I, I would say this. I think that that is what Paul is speaking about here. And he's saying to distance yourself from those people to beware of them, to, and if they continue to teach false things, if they continue to deny things that Christ has said, that the apostles have said, I think he is telling you to stay clear of them. Like, don't keep listening to them. Don't keep going to them for counsel, for teaching, for advice, for fellowship. I do not want us as a church and as Christians within a church to be on a witch hunt amongst church members and to just be thinking that anything we disagree on oh like you are an unbeliever i am not yoking with you i there is a there's a lot of things that we can believe within christianity there's things we must believe there's things we can believe there's things we cannot believe uh if people are teaching things that we cannot believe we should not be fellowshipping with them and listening to them if they're in that domain of things that they can believe, uh, we can fellowship together. We may disagree on certain things, but if they are denying things we must believe, we ought not to be listening to them either. And so we need to be mindful within their church that there are people who have some surface level regard for Jesus, love for Jesus, re- respect for the Bible, but who deny the gospel. Like, and we need to have a category for that. Jesus taught to be ready for wolves in the church, to be people who would wear sheep's clothing, but who would be wolves, who would not really believe the good news of Christ. And in Corinth, that was happening. There were these teachers who had some regard for the scriptures, had some regard, high regard even for Jesus, but who were undercutting Paul, an apostle Jesus had sent out. And Paul has tried to appeal to them. He's tried to challenge them and to say, I am teaching the gospel. Like You all are running contrary to it. And these Corinthians keep listening. Some of them at least keep listening to these false apostles. And Paul is saying, stop. Like Steer clear of them. That what they are doing in undercutting me and my ministry, my message that Christ has given to me, is dangerous to you. It's not something that you can just tolerate. And we need to be on guard today, even of, of people in the in community, people on the internet, if there are ever people who rise up in our church, uh, who, t- who have some regard for Jesus, but who cut against scripture, who say, this happens. You probably hear it if you, if you listen for it. There are people, many people in our world today who say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand Paul. You hear that, don't you? Like they're, they're, and it, it seems like, man, the, well, I can get over that. Like I can associate with them. I can fellowship with them. Is that not what was happening at Corinth? 
Like people were saying, we love Jesus. We love the scriptures. Paul, not so much. You can chuck what that guy says. That still happens today. And we cannot fellowship rightly and work together with people who say, I trust Jesus. I, I respect him in some vague sense, but not Paul. I can't go where he goes. I can't listen to what he says. We cannot do that. And I, I think Paul would say the same thing to us that he said to this church. Do not associate with people, uh, fellowship with people, treat people as believers who do that because they're not believing the good news of God. This pursuit of holiness that God calls us to even relationally can be hard. It can call for us to make hard decisions about who we spend time with, about how we orient our lives, especially if we have been yoked with people who are unbelievers. It can be a difficult thing to think, how do I take that off? How do I, how do I make sure that I have people pulling with me and that I'm pulling with that really are believers? And I would encourage you to seek that help out in community, to ask people for help of how to make those hard decisions instead of just perpetually doing them. It will be for your good, even if it is hard to do. And I want to end by referencing one other text, and then we'll sing together. I couldn't help, as I was going through this passage about being unequally yoked, without my mind going back to a passage with something that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, where he talks about a yoke. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, he said this. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we think about God's call to holiness, God's call to live righteously, it can sometimes feel like we're just pulling and pulling and pulling. And it can be tempting to think of God as this, like just this driver of us who's harsh and who's just calling for us to obey, 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 and, and disappointed whenever we fail or when we can't do or feel like we can't do what he's calling us to do. And it can feel exhausting. It can feel defeating. It can feel like we're trying to pull to earn God's favor, to earn God's blessing, to earn his approval for us but I love what Jesus says here because he says take my yoke upon you being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians is a bad thing being unequally yoked with Jesus is a glorious thing because when he comes alongside of us and he says, take my yoke upon you, he's still calling us to work. He's still calling us to live a life of holiness, to, to touch no unclean thing, to live separate, to live distinct. But he says that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. And the only way that that makes sense is if we know that Christ has already done the hard work. He's already pulled where we cannot. Like he's already gone and done the things that we could not do for ourselves, of gaining us forgiveness by his death on the cross, of defeating death. He plowed through the grave, like thing that we could never do on our own. And as he calls us to work for him, as he calls us to live for him, it's not a heavy burden, it's a light one. He calls us to work, he calls us to live holy, but he says that it is, it is light, that it is easy. I've been reading a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly based on this passage recently. He called the yoke of Jesus the anti-yoke. Like that it's also, like as we put it on, it's almost like it lifts us up. And he said that taking that yoke of Jesus upon us, he said it's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver. 
It's like, dude, that is beautiful. Like, that, that, throwing a life preserver to a guy who's drowning, yeah, he's got to, like, grab onto it and put the effort to get it, but it is lifting to him. All right? And when we take on the yoke of Jesus, when we do the hard things that he calls us to do as his people, it is light, it is uplifting to us because Christ has saved us. Christ has done the work to have us be the sons and daughters of God. And as he calls us to live for him, he helps us to do it. He's not a, a slave driver whipping us. He is gentle and lowly in heart, encouraging us, pressed on. I know this is hard, but it is for your good. It's for my glory. You can do it. And so may we take on the yoke of Christ, even as we seek to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. May we remember we're unequally yoked with him. And that is an eternally glorious thing. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song together, but thank you.